Hello, listeners. This is Olaya. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Nerve Sending Podcast. Our guest this time is Bishop Randall. He's our friend and neighbor. He's also a poet, a glass artist, a student of Zen, a father, and a storyteller. As you'll hear from our discussion, Bishop has gotten to know his place here on the Yuba watershed along the Montezuma Ridge, and he's gained a good understanding of the history of this area. Our poet friend and neighbor, Will Staple, who we had on the podcast earlier, also joins us in this episode as we talk of bears and Zen and shadows, indigenous culture, and Bishop reads some of his poetry and recites stories. If you are in the Nevada City, California area, uh, there's an event this weekend that is not to be missed. It's part of the Sierra Poetry Festival called Poetic Crossings, Past and Present. And it's going to be this Saturday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. at the North Columbia Schoolhouse Cultural Center. And both of our guests are going to be reading poetry. Actually, Will Staple's going to be reading Allen Ginsberg's poems. And Bishop's going to be reading the poetry of Lou Welsh. And there will be a lot of other great poetry and some local poets, so you should really check it out. Bishop is also about to release his book of poems called Animal Droppings, and that should be available this fall. So check the show notes for his contact info, and we will update that with where you can buy the book. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. Beast beast language, you know. medicine folks, they would work with what's called a damagomi, which is a demon. And the demons usually lived at the top of the mountain. If you're not in right, right relationship with your demon, uh, your demon would kill you. Um, Turtle Island is a term for... Earth. Yeah, it's been used as Earth, but also the North, North American continent. was built by hand no hand no no electric tools it's about a pandemic that comes from china in 2020 and by 2021 we start to enter full collapse and then it goes 10,000 years in the future as a judeo-christian i define zen as holy shit (laughs) (laughs) Uh, musicality being one thing surprises being another it's our mind it's not who we are uh-huh. it's that thing our mind is that thing that goes without us wanting it to go like what makes you think this is a poem zen is brutal zen will eat you fucking alive would it be all right if i read a story the next morning bear woke up early long before the sun was up it was the very beginning of the break of dawn when Bear sat up and started to sing. He was singing softly to himself, sort of humming. Then he got up and stretched himself and went to the spring to wash his face. He started a campfire while it was yet all dark. Then he started to cook breakfast. He was heating stones, small round stones. Mother, what was he singing? Who was the man, he said, was coming over the mountains? From the east singing 
the daylight. Oh, he was singing about his shadow. That song is what the shadow sings. Your shadow also. You must make him sing that way in the morning. Everybody's shadow comes home in the dawn, singing like that. What do you mean comes home? Sure, he comes home to you. Your shadow does. You are his home. But where has he been? Oh, he's been going around during the night, visiting, going places, and in the morning he comes home to you. Does he always come home? No. Sometimes he gets lost. That's why your father was singing. We are in a strange place. His shadow might be wandering around, looking for him. But if the shadow hears him singing, he says to himself, Oh, that's me over there. That's where I belong. And if he gets lost, what happens then? Then you get sick and you die. You can't keep on living without your shadow. Fox Boy thought a moment. Then he said, But Father's not going to die because he's singing, and his shadow must have heard him. I'd better sing too, so my shadow will hear me. Do you think you can remember the song? Listen, we'll sing it together. I'm coming, I'm coming, over the mountains I come home. I'm coming, I'm coming, with the daylight I come home. I'm coming, I'm coming, from the east I come home. Now look, we better get up and help Bear cook breakfast. So they got up and washed their faces at the spring. Then Antelope took some acorn flour and made a mush. She picked up some hot stones from the fire with a couple of sticks and dropped them into the mush, which was in a small basket. The hot stones made a hissing sound. Pretty soon the mush was bubbling and boiling. Little Fox Boy couldn't wait. He put his two fingers in the mush. Ouch! He yelled, jumping up and down and shaking his fingers. Well, why don't you wait and let it cool a little? Nobody's going to take it away from you. Take your time. Take your time. It never was that people couldn't wait a minute. Watch me. Watch how I do it. Now, Antelope deftly scooped some mush with her two fingers and she licked them off quickly, just like that. That's the way you do it she said. Oh, I can do that myself, said Fox. He was so quick that he smeared his nose with mush, and they all laughed. Breakfast over, they rolled up their things, shouldered their packs, and started traveling again. Tra, 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 up the trail. Tra, 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 down the trail. Tra, 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 along the level trail. They traveled all day, and that night they made their camp by a little stream. And Fox, little boy, crawled in between bear and antelope under the rabbit skin blanket and was soon fast asleep. Nice. So this was an Indian tale. It's Supposedly, this was from the Pitt River okay. tribe okay. in Northern California, but a shared understanding within California around... Um, maybe what we would call the subtle body mm -hmm. and how to work with it. 
Okay. Um, depression, maybe. The shadow being the, sh- the depression. Yeah, which is different than Jungian version of shadow. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a much different way of looking at it. I had those beautiful singing, too. I like that idea. We need our shadow. We learn from the idea that we learn from the shadow, kind of, or it's part of us. And it can get lost yeah. through trauma. Mm-hmm. It can, if we're traveling, um, it can have a, fr- a hard time finding us, and mm. um, singing can help it find find its way home. Interesting. Um, it, what's it like to lose your shadow? Do you per- know? Personally. I think I have an idea for myself because I think I lost my shadow once and it was the only thing that could bring me back was singing. Oh. But right. I, I never thought of it as losing my shadow. It was a weird experience. Was this on psychedelic? No, it wasn't. Oh. It was on five days of being awake. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's right. When I was very young, I moved from Cottage Grove, Oregon to Bakersfield and I forgot my shadow. And it took me... I th- it was about 25 years to make the correlation between what had occurred and know how to go back and sing for it so it could find me again. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> what is, so our shadow is, because usually I think of the shadow, you know, the, nowadays they do shadow work, This like what you were talking about, the Jung, Jungian idea of shadow work. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like dealing with our, maybe this idea of our demons or our mm-hmm. darks whatever baggage is that what but you're talking about a different something that's it seems good because you want to have your shadow right so we need the shadow but i'm not, i'm confused like you said you left your shadow and some people would think that would was like oh that's a good thing right we got over the shadow but mm. but but you you sang to it and got it back what i mean explain that a little bit because i'm like I'm, I'm trying to understand or shadow's part of us Right. I mean, metaphorically, right? Like, course, but like, like, does it mean like being in touch with our baggage, our past, or? I don't our, think so necessarily. Our, Even in ceremony, like okay. if somebody was getting sick, yeah, and dying, um, a doctor might be called, and that person would come and sing throughout the night, okay. and um. So in old California, I'm talking mostly about the left coast, California, and there's, you know, there's still 208 languages here in the late 1800s. So I'm making a lot of generalizations, but um, within doctoring, they would tend to work with, most people would have what's called a tinahawi. Okay. And that would be equivalent to like a spirit. Or an animal type totem. Okay. Um, medicine folks, they would work with what's called a damagomi, which is a demon. And the demons usually lived at the top of the mountain. For example, you know, we would have the buttes here. Mm-hmm. And Shasta was known to have a, 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 a terrible lizard that mm-hmm. lost all of its children. And that might be what the medicine people there worked with. Mm-hmm. So if somebody had gotten sick. They would call a doctor and the doctor would come and then they'd, they'd usually 
converse with the demon wow. and ask the demon to go out and look for that person's shadow, figure out what happened and what, you know, and maybe a whirly gig beetle or something stole it. You know, maybe you were staring too long at a whirly gig <laughs> beetle and you offended it. And, <laughs> you know, your, your shadow, he took your shadow. They took your shadow. And um, to figure that out, you, you sometimes need a, some in between to go and look for oh, it. Wow. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting example of somebody losing their shadow and it could be very physical and the doctors could be injured themselves. You know, if you're not in right, right relationship with your demon, uh, your demon would kill you. Wow. It would come and the doctors would get sick. Damn. Yeah. So that's an interesting. And this, um, cause you, you have native American roots, right? Is that I have, indigenous? I'm, I'm part. Yeah. Roots and so all of this is very um, kind of part of your history heritage as well. What tribe or do you? Um, Sock and Fox is what I know for sure. I'm actually researching it more and more. Um, I've been in conversation with Shelley Covert and the Nasanon and just talking to the local indigenous people and. Um, and then some of the theory around culture itself and where it arrives from. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting question whether culture is coming from humans, mm -hmm. from people, or from place. Mm. And place. maybe now that Westerners, people from Europe and other places who have migrated here, yeah. have been here for a few generations, we're starting to hear those those songs and those stories that have always been spoken here. Um, maybe even, just kind of digressing, but maybe even cultural appropriation is like an awkward teenager <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. just remembering something and doesn't know how to be it. Um, how do we honor what's been lost and what's been stolen and what's been desecrated while also embodying what it takes to be here on Turtle Island now? Mm. If we want to make a fire here, for example, you're going to need to know what kind of wood to use. There's a practical aspect to hearing and being of place. And then there's, yeah, the history of what's occurred and what's been taken. What is Turtle Island? Um, Turtle Island is a term for... Earth. Yeah, it's been used as Earth, but Northern also Earth. the North, North American continent. Oh, okay. Uh, that was actually... Gary's book of poems in 1978 that won the Pulitzer was titled Turtle Island. And it was the first, I believe, book to reintroduce that term. Oh, so it is considered the North American continent. By rather. some people. Okay. But then there's many cultures that believe are riding on a giant turtle's back. Yeah. That's cosmos. what I was thinking. Turtles but... all the way down. <laughs> um. Wow. Well, um, so there's a lot of flies in here. They've come for us. They've come for us. Um, well, they we, come for your shadow. I wanted to <laughs> right. also talk about, so that the, um, wanted to talk about you. Well, when we got here, you told us that a bear had just been in your house. That was an interesting story. Right. Maybe we could could tell the audience about that. 
We've got an ongoing bear situation. Will, do you want to start? First, <laughs> um, I'd had a big breakfast, salmon, eggs, and I read, and then I took a nap. It was a long nap. So from 11.30 to 2.30, and I woke up, and there was a bear six feet from me in my kitchen. And uh, he noticed I woke up, and he ran out the door. And I chased him. And then I got my marine horn and blasted him after he was far away, and he increased his uh, step. He had opened my refrigerator, and he'd only taken out salami. <laughs> And this is a bear wow. I'm, I'm going to work with uh, a friend here next Thursday. We're going to figure out how to put a new window I got. So that was six feet from me. Wow. And immediately he knew, this bear knew where to go. Do you think, do you think this is the same beer, bear? Sorry, I said beer, right? As you spilled the beer. Yeah. This is the same beer. <laughs> the same bear, not the same beer. Okay. Um, whoops. We got a little bit of beer on Dale Pendle's book here. I think I got it all off. This looks like a good book. Sorry. <laughs> I was out in the garden um, tending to things and I heard a, a horn from next door um, from Will's house. Half a mile away. His direction, yeah. So decided a, to come over to your house. <laughs> well, I didn't know it was a bear at the time, but, I, you know, you can imagine such yeah. things. We yeah. use this device for bears, so I figure the bear's out and about. And I continue to work in the garden, and I come inside and start cleaning up. I hear some noise, and I'm not sure what it is, and I go towards the kitchen, and I continue to hear the noise, and I open my pantry, and there's a small juvenile bear standing there on two legs looking at me as I'm looking at it. And I s raise my arms above my head and yell at it. And it runs past me and goes out the front door. And it had climbed through this tiny little window in the pantry that, what, like a foot and a half by a foot? Yeah, it's you small. Know, really small. But I climbed in and tried to get the peanut butter. And um, it's it keep, it's come back quite a bit. This bear, It's not the first time it's visited. It, this was from last year. It used to come with its mother. So it's been habituated to our neighborhood. Uh -oh. um, but uh -oh. that's common here. We have bears. I don't see the mountain lions, but we have them. Fox, jackrabbit, raccoon. They hide. They're good Skunk. at Skunk. The mountain lions. Yeah. They don't. Where you like to walk, that's where they hang out. Yeah, I do. Down on that lower trail. You think they're going to... Oh, well, oh, you, the, the trail that they... they um, cut a road in there mm -hmm. we I have a game like to walk we have a, a game camera down there so okay. we see them on it all the time i know i used to worry about that because i sometimes would take a pee out there and be like oh shoot we've had I six mountain lion kills <laughs> where i choose to pee 150 years in california you've had what there's been six people killed by a mountain lion oh wow in 150 years oh it's yeah not so many. not that many so you're like but still quite a bit more likely to be struck by lightning yeah okay a thousand times more. Yeah, like no, I've never seen a mountain shark. lion. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. They're they're amazing creatures. Um, but we have a lot of deer. 
I was sort of sad that they cut that trail down there because I used to like to walk it when it was still wild. And I know they have uh-huh. to do it because of the fires, but I liked the wildness and all the vines and the branches hanging down and like walking through a tunnel. <laughs> um, but uh, so I go out to Bald Mountain now, usually. That's a beautiful walk. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, so you're a glass blower. Yeah. And so that's an interesting art. I don't know that much about it. Um, but I know it involves fire and right. Yeah. How how does that work? Well, um, the type of glass blowing I do is called lamp working. Okay. I'm not using a furnace. Okay. Like the large offhand glass blowers most people see these days. Yeah. Like on the Netflix show Blown Away. <laughs> My style is a little different. Um, I'm working within a torch. It's a mixture of propane and oxygen mm-hmm. that mixes and allows me to <clears throat> heat up small portions of glass and manipulate it. Interesting. And you can do that? You have a studio? Do you have a place where you do that? Yeah, I have a studio across the river over at the Nail Factory, which is a collective of artists. Oh, I didn't know there was a collective of artists out here. Yeah, painters, jewelry makers, all kinds of folk. Because I do art. Yeah. You know, I do painting. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I make paints out of earth paints. Oh, cool. It's a company that, yeah, that anyway, they do all just take the. powdered clay and you Mm -hmm. mix it with the oil a walnut oil i've been helping my friend jennifer rain crosby who's been um bringing me yellow ochre and i take it to my studio and i heat it up to the in the kiln to 1150 and i turn it to red ochre oh nice wow just through heating it oh wow which is a really cool. cool process to see very alchemical interesting dale pendell writes a wonderful poem about red ochre nice um Actually, Jeremy and the Mantis, the person who illustrated it is Jennifer Rain Crosby. Oh, cool. She's the artist. Uh Uh-huh. And if you look here, like, Back Then Tomorrow, Peter Blue Cloud's book, Drawings by Bill Crosby. That's her dad. Okay, wow. So, artist family. (laughs) Yeah, real interesting history when you follow the lines. And that was another thing you wanted to talk about was the the history of this place, particularly, that you've absorbed and... Right. So maybe I can share a little bit about how I got here and where I'm at now. Um, So I was living in Japan prior to living in the area. I moved down to South County in between Arbor and Grass Valley. And um, I was with a woman at the time, Yuko Otaka uh, Nisei, second generation Japanese woman, that we had moved to Japan. She was teaching English, and I followed her out there. And Prior to moving out there, we lived in Davis, California. She was going to UC Davis. I was teaching glass there at the time. And I was working on a body of work based off of an old story of place about Earthmaker and Coyote. I don't know if you've heard that story or not. It's a shared creation story around California. You can hear my cat in the background. Oh, that's the cat? I yeah. thought it was a... Pappy, really do you want to come talk? Meow. <laughs> She's from Japan. Maybe that's why she came She's in. A- She's from the island She's where I used to live. Uh, meow, I guess. Meowing in Japanese. So, oh, no problem. So, so, like, when I was doing this body of work, Yuka, um, she suggested I, I, I look up this guy, Gary Snyder. She says, you guys 
really talk about the same things and seem to be interested in the same thing. And at that time, Gary was still teaching at the college. Oh, okay. so, but I had no clue about the Beats or Gary or any of that. Yeah. And then um, I ended up moving to Japan and she got me a book called The Dharma Bombs mm-hmm. by Jack Kerouac yep. and gave it to me. And so I'm riding on this ferry in between um, Kyushu and the island I was going to be living, Ikishima, reading about, you know, this guy that moved to Japan and still had no clue or connection to anything. And I live in Japan for a couple of years. I moved back and we moved to the area. And at that point, she gave me a book called Dimensions of a Life. And it was about Gary. And I was like, what is this thing? A book about like all these stories about a dude? Like, that's pretty pompous. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't even look at it. And then one day I did, I picked it up and I started reading and it was literally talking about here, Mm -hmm. very close to where I was living and talking about Zen and that there was a traditional Zen, Zendo uh, called Ring of Bone. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had always wanted to get involved with Zen. And I, when I was in Japan, I tried to find a place to practice and it just never materialized. And when I realized there's actually a traditional Zen practice here in the area, I got really interested. And I was like, I need to find this place. And um, I kind of pieced together some of the material in the book. And um, it talked about Ananda, the original Ananda. And um, I looked up where that was at. And then I figured out where this place is at. And I came out there and I talked with the gardener. And I said, where's Gary's place? And he says, down there. So I went down where he had pointed and came down to Gary's. And I knocked on Gary's door. Mm-hmm. And um, he came to the door and looked confused. And I asked him about the Zendo. And he said, oh, you know, they usually practice Monday nights at 730. Come back next Monday. Thank you. You know, I said, took off. I came back the following week at 7.30 on Monday and the Zendo was dark. There's no one there. Mm. So I go up and knock on Gary's door again. And, you know, this is 7.30, fall, starting to get dark. And Gary comes out in his little kimono. He looks like he looks like if Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi had a love child. <laughs> and he starts, oh, wow. he starts walking and he looks, he looks uh, disturbed that I'm there and like I shouldn't be there. And uh, he answers the door and he's like, what do you want? And I was like, no one's at the Sendo. And he's like, well, it is the first week of the month and they practice on Sunday mornings. And thinking about it, the teacher Nelson's in Hawaii and they might not have had practice this week. Come back next week. And I said, all right. But it was the end of summer. We had like a late rain or early rain. And I said, you know, um, do you think any mushrooms would pop, pop up in the area? And Gary said, not likely. And I told him I was up in Yosemite and um, I found a good size King Bolit. He said, well, where did you find it? And I said, I can't remember. He said, how did you get there? I said, well, I came down 395 over the pass. And he says, what's the name of the pass? I told him I couldn't remember. It's like, what lake were you near? I can't remember. <laughs> what mountain were you on? I can't remember. <clears throat> he looks me dead in my eye and says, son, stop screwing with me and tell me where you were at. Either you've done too many drugs or you weren't paying attention. <laughs> and I told him a little of each. So he looked at me like, maybe this kid's got half a brain. And he says, which direction's north? And I pointed in the direction I thought it was. And I said, I feel it's that way. And he said, a feeling is not a knowing what direction is north. 
And I pointed that direction again. He says, that's east. <laughs> <laughs> you should have known north since you were a child. And if you care to find out, go out on a clear night. Wait until the dawn. Find the North Star. Remember where it's out in the horizon. And you always know north. And you always know where you're at. And then he goes on and he goes, one time the great poet Robert Frost had a young man come to his door that shouldn't have been there. And Robert Frost asked the young man, do you know how you got here? And the young man responded, yes. He said, well, you'll know how to get back. <laughs> at that point, I felt pretty tiny, honestly. But it quieted my mind enough to hear what he was saying, which was, don't come to me looking for your direction. Mm -hmm. Know where you're at. Know where you've been, where you've been. Know where you're going. And then he asked me about my Vibram toe shoes and how they handled the trail. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went home. And a couple of weeks later, I saw him at the schoolhouse, our local cultural center. And he comes up to me and he says, <clears throat> looks like you're finding your way. I said, Gary, you know, I've shared this story with a few people now. And he giggles and he says, well, you know, I'm still finding my way as well. <laughs> and that was kind of how I got started here. And I'm still finding my way, still screwing nuts down on bolts. But this is an interesting community that Will Staple maybe shared a little bit about already in your previous podcast. But it was um, <clears throat> Gary Snyder, Dick Baker from the San Francisco Zen Center, Allen Ginsberg, and Kriyananda of Ananda Village first bought property here in 1970. <clears throat> and from there, other friends showed up and started to build properties. The place that I now live in and the place we're at now was built first by Gene and Bob Greensfelder back in 1974. And it was the only other place that was built in the similar fashion to Gary's house by the same architects. And it's a combination of Japanese, North Coast longhouse, and Scandinavian design and architecture. And all peeled cedar beams. Um, there's a beautiful center post. And it was built by hand. No, hand, no, no electric tools uh, by a group of friends that had a lot, a lot to do and a lot of time. <laughs> did, did you have beautiful. a hand in this, Will? No, no, I showed up much, much, much later. No, but Will, did Will? Um, I got the, some of the reject logs <laughs> from this group. <laughs> and the same people that were working here for a good wage volunteered for a day or two when I put my house up in, in a weekend. That's right. You told us about how yeah. Allen Ginsberg and Peter were over there naked building your house. Helping you build Actually, the house. Actually, no. uh, they were naked on Allen's house. Oh, just okay. down. <laughs> just down. Um, but Bob Greensfelder uh, was neighbors in the Bay Area. Uh, they were lived in Muir Beach. And... Um, one of their daughters lives next door at WEPA with Bob Erickson. Okay. We've gone backwards a little bit, but can we go forwards yeah. with another story? Sure. Yes. This is a wonderful story that's part of a book by Dale Pendell called The Great Bay. Are you familiar? A little bit, but I haven't actually read that book. Okay. I'm familiar with Dale Pendell. So Pendell. 
He he was around here, and I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to meet him, really. I met him briefly, but not. Anyway. He he wrote the Pharmacopeia trilogy. Right, I have that one. Um, you know, Ethnobotany, Plant Medicine. Right. And then he's written some wonderful poetry, some notes on divination, and one novel. Mm. Oh, and a children's book that I can't nice. recommend enough. Nice. Um, yeah, but this, this is really good. This is this is part of his novel. Now this is a science fiction novel written in 2010 about something that would happen in 2020. That's not about a pandemic, is it? It actually is. Oh. Wow. It's about a pandemic that comes from China in 2020 no and by way. 2021 we start to enter full collapse and then it goes wow. 10,000 years in the future. Mirroring, mirroring Gary's own work going 10,000 years in the past anthropologically. So this is moving in, and we're going to start with one portion titled Jake, which is based off of Jake Friedant, Stephanie Friedant's son. And it's Sierra Ridge 2032 from Janet Conway's Stories of the Collapse, archives of the Scholars Guild, Berkeley. The old poet died at 90. The community he had done so much to found and nurture came out for one of the largest circles in the history of Sierra Ridge. They had small, battery-powered amplifier, and people read favorite poems or their own poems or told stories. The Ridge had sent out the news by radio, both citizens' band and shortwave. When the telephones and cell phones had stopped working, the Ridge had quickly reverted to its twice-daily CB breaks. Except for a few Pelton wheels, almost everything was solar. They'd never been on the grid. There was probably more electric light on the Sierra Ridge than every, anywhere else in the state. They ran electric chainsaws. They also had an international network of contacts in the literary and intellectual communities and probably knew more about what was going on in the rest of the world than the CIA, if there still were any CIA. Shortwave broadcasts were relayed from station to station. They were called the new relays. Mostly it was done in code. Morse code transmissions could carry great distances if the D-layer was behaving. Voice contacts were common, but less reliable. Brief eulogies arrived from all over the world. It seemed impossible that an American could win the Nobel Prize, so hated had the country become and the international community. But a book of devastating political poems and critiques in his late 70s had won the old poet the prize one year before the collapse. The book had virtually been prophecy. The causes and progression of the collapse uncannily sequestered in metaphors and images scattered through the poems. Greetings came from China and Japan and Korea, from Sweden and Estonia, from Germany, France, and Central Europe, from Yusha, Russia, the Middle East, and from Africa. The radio was manned 24 hours transcribing code. The old poet had been preparing himself and his community for the collapse for 50 years. He even had a glass dump on his land in case it might be needed for flaking arrowheads or tools. People had electric pumps for their wells, but there were always hand pumps in the barn that could be reattached. Spring boxes, gravity feeds, were common. In the few flats and sinks that had any soil, there were organic gardens. Apple trees had been planted up and down the ridge for 150 years. Still, the ridge community had turned out to be far more dependent on fossil fuel economy than they had thought. The mills and wood shops ran on generators. People were used to driving the five and ten miles mile distances from Maidu Hill to the North Diggins, not to mention the twenty miles to town or the fifty miles to Sacramento. 
or Yuba City. For the most part, their cabins were clustered in certain neighborhoods or watersheds. Ten families lived in the drainage of icy French Creek. Fifty lived on a tiny spur above the river. There were over a hundred scattered across Maidu Hill, and several hundred more in the score of other tiny watersheds and benches. When the collapse hit, they already had their own schools, wineries, mills, gardens, power, and two generations of experience. They had a machine shop, a small illegal distillery, and some of the state's more extensive private libraries. Impressive arrays of 12-volt appliances were in operation. People knew how to use outhouses and how to conserve water. There were deer, wild turkeys, and wild pig, in addition to domestic animals. There were horses, people who knew how to use them, and a sizable herd of free-ranging cattle. Nonetheless, the collapse was traumatic, if not on the scale of the urban disasters. Jake made a political speech. He talked about the difference between personal property and the ownership of resources. He talked about different forms of political organization and the opportunity for the Ridge to encourage and support the other collectives emerging around the state. He said that they should trade their surpluses, which were substantial, with other collectives like their own. He warned about, po about the possible emergence of a new feudalism. Some people were still claiming ownership of large tracts of land and trying to collect rent and labor. He warned about mercenaries and gangs of bandits. He talked about the possible forms of a large-scale confederation and non-coercive action in regional gatherings. He said they should try to form a network of communities, each within a day's journey of another, all in contact by radio, and proposed a series of long, year-long cultural exchanges with like-minded communities in the valley, on the coast, and around the San Francisco Bay. He said that they should form a confederation without a capital, linked by personal friendships and general meetings that would rotate from community to community. He said that if they could promulgate the principles of voluntary cooperation through example, they might be able to isolate any groups trying to form large militias or armies and contain them. He said the collapse had given them a chance to explain the intrinsic pathology of military oligarchic states with their insatiable material acquisitiveness to everyone, and that they could avoid making the same mistake. He said they should. They he said they needed stories to explain this, and they had to be taught to the children. It was a good speech. People hooted. None of Jake's ideas were followed up on in any specific way, but it didn't matter. Events followed their own momentum, and things worked out much as Jake had outlined. The old poet was given a Buddhist funeral, somewhere between that befitting a monk and a fox. They burned his body in Big Meadow on a huge pyre of manzanita branches. The Shingyo is chanted by the circle in Sino-Japanese and in English. The collapse had occurred 54 years after the human being in Golden Gate Park. On the Sierra Ridge, the pecan and almond trees, the small groves of black and English walnut trees that had been planted, in the early 70s were mature and still bearing. Nice. I'm definitely going to check out that book now. It's interesting. Thank you. Yeah, we want more of The Great Bay by Dale Pendle. Pendle. Chronicles of the Collapse. Yeah, nice. 
No, he was, speaking of wizards, I think we were talking about wizards earlier, David Bowie being a wizard. Well, Dale Pendle was certainly a wizard. He had I mean, nice he had eyebrows. Those eyebrows that were yeah. wizard's eyebrows. They, anybody who, yeah, they, they like curled up at the ends. I just met him that once after he read a Moe's books in Berkeley. Oh, nice. Um, I said hello to him and his girlfriend, or his wife, lovely wife. Um, but, you know, I... Just a fellow poet saying hello. That was about it. And I wanted to uh, to meet, you know, actually converse with him more. But anyways, I did get to see his eyebrows. <sighs> Which were very impressive. Um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, so getting back to you and your story, um, I guess this is part of your story because you knew Dale? Did you know? I, get, I did get to know Dale. Nice. Gary, Will... And Dale were some of the people that originally started the Zendo. Okay, yeah. So right. when I first started practicing there mm-hmm. at Ring of Bone, Dale was still participating. Nice. That was right before, I think, his diagnosis, diagnosis of bone cancer. Right. I was going to help him put his papers together and spend some time with him, and, and things went fast. Yeah, I, actually, I was going to order. A, he did uh, work. He made bracelets and jewelry, mm-hmm. and I was actually going to order a one from him but then you know this happened and and uh anyways that never came to to be but uh hopefully he's still with us in spirit somehow uh, and these other people such as Lou Welsh who we been inspired by in our culture it's it's our books get to be our elders. Mm-hmm. So these individuals might not be around any longer, but their work is still with us and gets to translate a lot, transmute a lot. I often go to the, uh, it's not a ring of bone, but it's the ring of stones that is out near the um, Bald Mountain. And I think that was set up the sort of, in in honor of Lou, was it Lou Welsh, or is that just part of the the Ring of Bones Zendo? Uh, and Ananda uses it too. Oh, okay. And the, the Ring of Bone, after the eight day session, mm. um, Rohatsu, Rohatsu in the morning and the evening. It's mm-hmm. a working man's session or woman's, mm. and then go up there before dawn and circle the rocks three times, and then. Look up at the uh, morning star as Buddha did on the same day and do the Shingyo. I just want to say a few words about Lou's ending. I was here the night before Lou disappeared, and we had a long conversation. Um, and he, um, told me about his alcohol and I was curious about alcoholism because I love to drink and I decided I was the uh, hedonist glutton rather than an alcoholic but Lou um, and I'll talk sometime about the conversation if I can remember it but the two things were when I left here I went down to 
Glen Ellen. And I was, as I was, and I had spent a day somewhere before going down there. And as I crossed Highway 1, I guess it's 101 there, I thought I saw Lou Welsh on hitchhiking on the on-ramp. And I said, wow, that looked like Lou Welsh. So I was so certain, I, as I crossed the freeway, I found a place to make a U-turn, and I came back, and he was gone. Mm. Whoever that was, Lou or not, but I was certain of it. Um, several years later, another poet, uh, originally, who was going to read at the Sierra um, Poetry event, Don Dockler, also had a sighting. Years later, he was in a Denny's <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning. Oh, please. And he was almost certain Lou Walsh was there with a uh, skinny blonde woman. Ghosts like pancakes two, also. <laughs> and two unmanageable kids. And we're having an early breakfast. So wow. it's two poets against the world, uh, whether Lou was actually dead or not. I prefer well, that he was tired of his life. He gave so much to so many people. Mm-hmm. When he was lecturing on the black experience at San Francisco State, he would cry. Uh, he did get involved, as many people did, in drugs. And when he thought he was um, going to be busted, he he was amazed at all the stuff he had collected over the years that people had laid on him. Yeah. And he got rid of it all. And when he was here, he was on anti-abuse at Gary's house. Right. So you would get sick if you drank, but I think he might've had a couple swigs and got sick. But, um, so, and I admire you. You have a, a sort of a sensitivity like Lou Welsh because you're, have a thin build like Lou did. And so he was more, he reacted to the environment much more than we have a heftier interiority have. Mm. And I mean, so he was, he was, he was, his heart was in love with everything and, and could cry about all the sufferings of the world. I can relate to that. I cry a lot, but I was also going to say Bishop, um, has, he has a similar look to Lou. <clears throat> You've been told that, right? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know why we need to talk. I just was going to say, well, Lou, if you're out there, Lou Welsh. Come be on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun if he's still kicking. Yeah. Just escaped. Um, you know, please come be a guest on our podcast. But no, it's lo- <laughs> lovely to have you on our podcast, Bishop, and, and our guest, Will, here too. But um, I wanted to, so bring it back to to you and your um, kind of, your story. That's sort of the the focus here. Um, what do you want to talk about? Oh, man. <laughs> That's pretty open, isn't it? Yeah, just tell us. Who are you? What are you, what are you doing? What do you, what do you want to say? Huh. Well, I guess my interest with poetry is not necessarily even poetics. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's thinking about sound quality. Mm, interesting. And song itself as a healing modality. 
Uh, one time Gary asked me what a letter was. Like, what is a letter? Does anybody want to try and answer that? Letter? Yeah, a letter. Well, there's the written. It's the the the, 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 the phoneme, right? It mm-hmm. kind of gives you a map of how to make a sound. Or almost the reverse. It's a symbol. A symbol. For a sound. Yeah. Our mouth forms. Our tongue and mouth form to make. Sure, that works. You know, that was kind of what he got to me. And then he talked about the origins of the alphabet and that oftentimes the alphabets have direction from the front to the back of our mouth. Well, that's interesting. Tell us more. Well, for me, when he mentioned that, I thought of music and scale. Uh-huh. That if I can find direction, I can f- find pattern. And once you start finding pattern, it's like, you know, now we're, now we're, it's on. Now we're singing. Now we're <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a real opening for me within poetics and realizing, you know, looking at sutra, looking at chanting or any form of combination of sounds and what function that holds and playing with that in relationship not just to the content of the words we're speaking, but really, what are we doing with it? So within poetics, that's been my play. And, you know, we were just talking about Lou Welch, and he was very much influenced by Gertrude Stein. And Gertrude Stein was heavily influenced by cubism and sound qualities. And um, an example of a lineage is a small poem that uses a line by Gertrude, but it goes, To think is to think, is to think, is to think. Nothing to do today. Nothing to do. Nothing to do today. Nothing to do. Song of rain falling on a sheet metal roof. So sound poetry has always captured me. I didn't know really what it was, but as I learn more about other people that have delved into it, uh, it's a fascinating way, fascinating way to approach poetry, um, to approach healing and to look at sound in relationship to content. Interesting. Yeah. We, Eli and I were just having the conversation yesterday about, about songs and I was convinced that it doesn't really matter what you say. And and that became the jumping off point for just a silly, you know, these they they, they come, they go, they they never get recorded, and they they're lost to the day. But that idea of play certainly is, I think, critical for me, in in, in the word game. Michael McClure was a real master of it. Yeah, his, his book. Um, Gar. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Beast beast <laughs> language. You know. Uh, Gruul. I have that one. Um, Oh man, he's another character I wish I'd Uh, met. Gregory Corso is another one. Oh yeah, Uh, he's a wild cat. cat, Yeah. Right. But uh, no, I had a chance to meet McClure, but I missed it. Speaking of McClure. Yeah, I'll introduce you. And I was like, yeah, introduce me. But it never happened, and then, you know, he passed. That's why I'm like, hey, I want to meet Gary, but it might be too late. Anyway, the point is, Mm. um, I was going to say, we were talking earlier about, this just reminded me of, you know, we were talking about the sound healing, that sound healing ceremony, and the binaural beats, and how that 
I mean, just the sound itself is so powerful, you know, and, and does have a healing quality. And, and I was brought, when I was doing that breathwork sound healing ceremony with Aostar and uh, Matthias, um, I was brought into this, like you said, it was like DMT, right? It was, it was like a, a psychedelic experience with no drugs. So it's interesting that how powerful and healing sound can be sound and music and but you're you're but you're talking about something that's a little different than music it's poetry as the sounds of the words right so poetry and art for me is a it's it's not an accurate language for me poetics and art are really like hard to define mm. in a lot of ways um for those who have been to a traditional healing ceremony, whether it be ayahuasca, peyote, washuma, any of them, they're probably, and even if you look into anthropological texts of California and old Turtle Island, mm -hmm. you're going to notice that during those medicine ceremonies, song were the, the commonality. Um, for myself, I made the connection through ayahuasca ceremony. I was working with these wonderful individuals that sang in Quechua. Um, a language of the vine, some might say. And I had been working with them for maybe two or three years at the time. And at the same time, I started practicing Zen. And I started working with the sutras and memorizing the sutras. And my experience with ayahuasca was very uh, disassociative, out of body, dark, heavy, difficult. Um, I didn't share with people my experience, but when I was sitting in ceremony, I was going through are di very difficult, dark, um, self-loathing type experiences. And uh, I went into ceremony after a time period and I decided to approach it differently. I went through my whole set of sutras before the, pra before actually during, after I drank the medicine. Mm. So I went, sat, set up like I was going into a week long session a meditation practice for a week long like we do at the Zendo and I drank the medicine and I sat on my little space and I went through my sutras and by the time I got through the sutras the medicine had taken hold and I started listening to the song that was being sung by folks the doctors there and I didn't know what they were saying but the song itself was coming to me the words were coming through me the Quechua language was moving through me the whole night I became a song. Wow. And that was the real unlocking was uh, the language itself. The vine itself spoke through me. I got out of the way, but it was through my, my own songs, my own sutra that I was able to connect into this other form of song and make the connection between the two and enter into that realm to where well, I was gone. There was mm -hmm. no I, it was just speaking through me. And I talked to the next day. I said, you know, to the, the doctor I was working with. That was a wonderful song. I really like this specific song. He's like, and I said, you know, the words are coming to me. He's, I was like, I must have memorized it from our previous times. He said, no, that song came through me for the first time last night too. Wow. So it was, so, it was, it was a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's transmission. It's, it's a, 
it's like a radio frequency. If you tune into it, it can pick up. You can pick pick up on it. Um, song and these healing modalities are intrinsic in our nature as being humans. Uh, we don't get a lot of opportunities to work in that way any longer. But poetics is one way that we've held on to it within the Judeo-Christian Occidental world. Funny that they would they would make a point to outlaw or banish the songs and the ceremony and the dance. It's a great way to shut a culture down. Did they outlaw? What you what are you talking you mean? Oh, the old practices. Oh yeah. Oh, you mean the Gnostics? Like the are you talking about Christians or are you talking about Well, I guess it goes back, whatever yeah. the colonizing forces right. are. I guess that's true, yeah. Yeah, I mean there is yeah, a it lot starts of like, with that. The repression of also like repression of psychedelic, you know, which are the repression of, you know, I mean some of these, you know, ayahuasca is illegal, right? Is it or is it? I don't know. I don't know either. Oh, it's okay to talk about I mean, don't worry. I it's fine. But I'm just saying like that yeah, I, I, I understand. I think that um What about the drugs your mind makes? Right. The dr- I mean our our minds do make DMT, right? So the the vines speak. They they have a language. Well it's interesting about they ayahuasca. They sang to you. Well, ayahuasca isn't ayahuasca has no DMT in it. You know, no. you have shakruna or shalipanga, these other plants that are in relationship with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is essentially a translator, if we were to put it that way. It's allowing these other plants to speak through it to you. Mm. And likewise, I found it to be able to speak through me mm-hmm. to others. So you were chanting the the transmission from this plant. Some believe that the Quechua language language itself is the vine. The mm. vine, the language, their language is actually the plant's language. Interesting. It's like that uh, Hindu concept of fruity. I'm not familiar. It's the the idea of a herd language. It's something imprinted from divine. Well, back to that idea. Where does culture come from? People or place? Are we doing it, or are we listening well enough to pick up on it? (laughs) Certainly we're shaped by the place we are in. You know, we're shaped by our environment. I think think there's this idea, and you keep touching on it, about the idea of song and healing and their connection. And I think that would make the human being a kind of instrument. And I think a big problem that we see in our culture today, our culture, whatever this like global thing is that's happening, I, I, I see a lot of out-of-tune instruments. And it doesn't seem to matter how well you play. If the thing's out of tune, it's not going to feel right. It's not going to sound right. It's, it's not going to sing the song in that way. That when it's in tune, it will. And so how do we get in tune? Well, this is the this is part of the medicine, right? This is where the practices come in. This is where it's the the self awareness of your body, for example, because your body is the instrument. And if we're in contorted states day after day, constricted in various ways, then we become 
you know, less than our full potential. You know, Justin is a Chinese medicine practitioner and a, um, he does acupuncture. Okay. So he has very, he's very much aware of the bodies. Yeah, the muscles, they act like strings and strings are, they share, they, it's just a commonality of, of like octaves and harmonics. Like Pythagoras, you have, when you divide a string in half, you have the octave. Right. When you divide it into third, you have the perfect fifth. And then when you divide it into court, into fourths, you have, what is it, the next, the next, whatever the next harmonic is. But it's interesting how it works mathematically. You find pressure points at those same spots on the body. Yeah, if you, have you had acupuncture before? Yeah, recently was my first time, actually. Really? It was interesting. Well, a woman, a poet also, Wong Ping, was okay. visiting Gary, and she was giving us acu acupuncture, acupuncture daily. Nice. And the one on my finger, she went so, or on my hand so deep that every time I'd move my finger, the needle would twitch around, and she said, "Stop doing that." <laughs> but I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Well, um, if you wanted more, we do offer a, our podcast guests. Well, I shouldn't offer for you. Sorry, Justin. But. <laughs> I got my agent working for us. Yeah, no, I'm, um, you know, he 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 gives uh, discounts to poets, or just you know, would give you free acupuncture if you wanted for being on our podcast. You know, I don't know if this touches into what you're talking about just now, Justin, but um, not everybody became a person. Not everybody became a person in the old anthropological stories of California. You know, they talk about the two brother hawks, the chief hawks. There's an older brother Hawk, then there's younger brother Sparrowhawk that, you know, he argued with everybody and needed his own door and all these things. <laughs> and that was fine, you know, that's fine. That's part of it. That's the part of our one of our archetypes, you know, the, the the person that never became a person, you know, never quite grew up. Uh -huh. But we're almost in a culture now of what we might even call proto-humans, non-initiates. That haven't quite grown up. Uh, that, that explains a lot. <laughs> and, you know, that's okay, too. But that's just where we're at. The, the kids at the door <laughs> who don't know where they are and how they got there. Right. This is a fun poem by uh, a, a wonderful friend of Gary's and person from our neighborhood, Will Newell, named Anel Sakaki. That touches on song a little bit. It's titled Firewood. Looking for firewood in snow mountains, carrying back firewood, splitting firewood, listening to burning wood, watching for dancing flame. So joyous you forget yourself, you forget a serious appointment. You become a piece of firewood, warming up, flaming up, singing up. Dancing up. You become ash. Nice. I think that's the process <laughs> of healing and, and development. <laughs> yes, we have a destiny that awaits us. <laughs> Shall we push pause on the machine?
He is an excellent cook. I mean, we had venison curry last night. And then we went out to the movies. That was fun. In in the library's uh, lawn, a wet, moist lawn. Great. Long movie. Wow. Yeah, that does it does seem a bit long, the Dark Crystal. Yeah. I feel like I could have tightened it up, but things used to be different, right? <laughs> <laughs> they were on a different time frame for sure. That was one thing I liked in that first that first bit you read about um the bear not hurrying with the taking the time. And immediately from my house he came right here. He's and I where I wonder where he goes the next place. Trash strewn from open pantry door. Bear exits out of shadow into shadow, leaving such a mess. Oh, I had a question. <laughs> I had a question. The um, the strong influence of Zen in these in these here parts. Uh huh. That is interesting to me. Where does that come from? Oh. Course, I guess you know, Japan. I guess it's a Japanese influence. Keeps moving. You know, Zen likes to move. You know, Bodhidharma brought it from India into southern China, which turned it into Chan. It went from there to Korea. It went to traveled, you know, and kept going further till it got to the left coast in the early sixties. Gary returned from Kyoto, living there ten years for the human being. And brought it back. Alan Gins, I mean, Alan Watts and other folks propagated it further. Uh, many, many contri- contributions. What's its place here? Wow. Uh, when we were building Gary's house, um, we would sit before dawn, two or three periods. So we were set for the day, clear-minded, ready to work. And that just continued afterwards in Gary's barn, um, a weekly sitting with some sashins. And I, and then um, from Hawaii, uh, we had an actual Zen master come. Um, Aiken Roshi. And we had sashins with koans. And once then we were, 12 or 14 of us were really hooked. And so Gary sent out a letter asking for people to come and for funds. And we built the Zendo. It was very organized. And uh, we sat in the morning and um, we worked all day. And of course, there were parties at night. <laughs> I like that they party at night. And there was, um, most of the people were locals, but we had 10 or 12 people, um, mostly young and healthy, 20 something, 30 or so, just a couple older folks that also worked on this endo. And we put it up in amazingly short time, but it was a lot of work. And uh, that's how we got the Zendo here. Getting back to a little bit of like, if I'm going to talk about Zen and what it's doing here, um, looking at our culture, we don't have a lot of forms of practice. 
for those of us that still would like to find versions of it, for myself, Zen seemed tangible and approachable. Um, mostly being a practice of the relationship between mind and phenomena allowed me to slow down enough to look at things in a culture that doesn't allow a lot of space for that. And there wasn't as much authoritarian or religious dogma attached to it as other things also, which I, for myself, tend to reject. It allowed me to get a little bit towards that, except teacher, which was a big one. Nelson Foster, Foster is my teacher, and he's an expert at what he does. He's not a guru. It's good to know the difference. Yeah, yeah. Teacher versus guru. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of gurus around, right? It's <laughs> another thing about this place. In a world of sycophants, you've got a lot of gurus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, master. <laughs> Nelson Foster's next door. Yeah, another neighbor. Our land is butted up to one another. This this area is a really interesting community. It's not just Buddhist, but it's based off ecology. When they set up the land um, itself, it was set up as an animal corridor. So minimum of 40-acre parcels. We're limited as far as how many buildings we can have on those parcels. We are limited as far as having dogs, because dogs disrupt animals' uh, ability to migrate and feel safe in the area, especially deer and other things with the barking. Um, there's no fences. So there's a huge ecological component to this place. And our um, organization that was started early on is called the Yuba River Watershed Institute. And this is an interesting organization because we co-manage our forest, the Inman Forest, with the Bureau of Land Management as citizens. We write the model for how the forest is managed knowing a certain square footage of lumber has to be removed each year, but we get to do it thoughtfully and write our own grants and write our own programs. And it's a way to implement a lot of old forms of land management, <clears throat> fire being probably the most pronounced one, using fire to manage the land itself through prescribed burns, reducing ladder and fuel material, so we can start to implement fire and burn other portions of the land and get the land back to a place where a lot of the understory has been removed and a lot, it allows for other plant species to return, animals to move more freely, including ourselves. So it, it's interesting, um, the combination of what's occurring here with now with a few generations between really blue-collared values that go back to the wobbly generation and like even prior to that and um, socialism. You know, once Gary said, you know, if I was to classify myself, I'd call myself a socialist, anarchist, Taoist, um, Buddhist. <laughs> and I like that. And it kind of sums up a little bit of what's going on around here. Would you want to add anything to that, Will? That was a broad... No, that's a good... An acro-Daoist is a little more radical than a socialist, but their action is non-action. Yes, it's more fucked up than you think it is, 
but I'm going to let it happen and see where it turns, what, see what's up. And, and I'd like to touch real fast. There was a huge component of uh, local politics, you know, that we could actually have a say here and get involved yeah. in your water board, school board, county board mm-hmm. on some level. And um, that's changed. And, you know, we, we've got a mine proposed to open here locally and less people that know how to deal with that than we once did. And there's some conversations to be had about how to be of action now, mm-hmm. not through social media, but, right. you know, really, you know, a joke here is we practice Zen to prepare for meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep that alive. You never get bored. <laughs> That's, hey, you, you got it. So much is based around social media now because, you know, of course I hear about, the, I didn't know about the mine. Like there were there were some actions being organized against the mine through, I mean, it is a organizing tool in a way. Social media can be, when it's used well, it can be a tool used for, um, I mean, look, the Occupy movement um, in the, Arab Spring, you know, that whatever, these, these movements that happened uh, were largely aided by, I don't know if it's social media, but just, you know, by the internet, by the fact that we could see what was happening. Oh, you know, look what's happening um, overseas. And then the Occupy movement um, wasn't, I don't know that it would have been, been as widespread had it not been for you know, the internet. So there is... Would, would it have been more long-lived had it incorporated more civics to follow up with? Um, would be my possibly, question. Probably, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. I feel like... I mean, because you're saying that that before um, this local, the politics and the involvement in the community was seemed to be more effective that people were more effective, right? In a civic way, in a small, unseen way, unannounced, uncelebrated way. Yeah. You know, from a road committee to just these tiny nuanced ways of participating that we've stopped doing. Mm. Um, There's a lot of apathy around politics. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure to put on a politician to like control and manage everything. And it's not fair to them as people. And the system itself is a juggernaut. It's a system apart from the individual. Um, those who do choose to go into politics that are of uh, a mind to help others are still trapped in that system. And it's hard to differentiate who is taking advantage of the system and who's altruistic and there to help it. Um, if we look at Jerry Brown, and some of his career, you get to see a lot, you know, as an individual, especially working with Gary and knowing his life. Um, that helped me mature around my own thoughts with politics. Of These are real people, like you said, managing millions of people. Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. It's, it's a big job. And how do we tell the difference between those that are, really just managing it and those are taking advantage of this. 
Well, I think anybody who's honest is going to feel the burden of that heaviness and, in a way. Uh, yeah, the people he had to take advantage of and corrupted. And... I was thinking, or I had asked Gary about fracking. I was like, how the hell is Jerry Brown allowing fracking to occur? You know, Jesus Christ. And he's like, it would occur whoever's there. But to save that river or to save that grove and see if that place can be there for a later time when the system isn't there, we did that. That was a trade-off, a compromise. And you have to work with strange people to do that. And and that, to me, was like, oh, okay. I've not been participating myself within any civic action. I've been complaining, but I'm not really doing much. And, you know, even now, it's like, okay, what do I do? It's small. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It's It's, you know... I think that's actually profound in a way when you when you look at the world and you see all the big problems but you realize that what you can do is you know limited in the way that you can do it and the actual space that you fill is one human being and if you do that what's good and do your own bit to make things better I think that's something yes an, and it can have an a ripple a ripple effect because I think you know you can be an inspiration for others hopefully I mean, or it maybe influence them to be also better. But There's some wonderful art in this piece by Dale Pendel, if I can find it real quick. Back to the collapse. While you find it, I just want to say that one of the last uh, legislations Jerry Brown did was to eliminate police immu uh, being immune from their consequences of their violence. So they will... There's always a sunset clause on all these laws, but police would have to stand up in court, not be immune for whatever they did. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that they get immune? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Go, Jerry. But that they should have to be, also be accused of murder and not be immune from the consequences of the... Uh, Something more than administrative leave. Yeah. Right. With pay. Yeah. Well, but... Yeah, that it's kind of like what the Black Lives Matter was. That whole movement was kind of about police brutality, right? Mm -hmm. Towards, I mean, but he didn't you know. come out and make a lot of statements. He just worked on this one bit of legislature mm -hmm. that would uh, level the playing field. Did one thing I liked it? about that guy is you didn't see him that much. This little, yeah. this little passage by Dale titled "Clear Cloud." is a great example of the effectiveness of simply being an example mm -hmm. by showing. Huda Creek, 750 years after the collapse, Library of the Order of Antiquities. Clear Cloud had disembarked from the ferry near Cache Creek. He followed an overgrown trail along the creek for two days until he reached the pass near the hot springs. A woman with a shaved head was camped by the river. Intrigued, Clear Cloud walked into her camp and asked her if she were a Buddhist. I'm not sure what that means, the woman answered. Why do you ask? I saw your shaved head. My name is Clear Cloud. I'm the abbot of the temple at Lower Lake. Ah, yes, she said. I've heard of you. What do you study there at the temple? We practice meditation and we study the koans. Which koans do you study? There were only only a handful. Once, he knew, in prequel times, 
this insect had hundreds of koans, each one carefully nurtured and passed on to the next generation. Now there were only half a dozen. In some ways, one koan was enough. How could it be exhausted? And a good teacher could improvise variations as checking questions. We have the koan of Mu and the koan of the one hand, Clear Cloud said, and four others. The rest are lost. Ah, the woman said, and how is it with Mu? Why was she asking questions like that? There was something disturbing about the way she laughed as she asked her question. Clear Cloud answered that his teacher had delivered several wonderful lectures on the koan and the importance of spontaneity. He himself had found the ideogram for Mu and had lectured on the probable meaning in terms of transmigration of souls, that since Mu meant no, the koan meant that all things arise from emptiness. Ah, the woman said. Then she asked him if he would like some Yupon tea, to which Clear Cloud assented. In my travels far to the north, up the Columbia, I heard a koan from a teacher there on the river, the woman said. Would you like to hear it? Maybe you could tell me the answer. Clear Cloud responded that he would very much like to hear it, and that indeed he might be able to expound an answer for her. Long ago, she said, an ancient Buddha asked, All things arise from emptiness. From where does the emptiness arise? Clear Cloud responded immediately, knowing that an enlightened master should never hesitate before giving an answer. From the Buddha, ah, the woman said. Can you show me that? Show? How could such a thing be shown? How would you answer that? Clear Cloud asked, slightly annoyed. The woman didn't answer, but refilled Clear Cloud's teacup. Clear Cloud started explaining to her how she needed to understand that the Buddha represented emptiness and was therefore present in everything. But the woman quickly changed the subject and began asking him about his travels and about life around the temple at Lower Lake. When they finished their tea, she wiped out the two cups, packed up her gear, and made ready to continue her journey east. As she left, she asked, From where does emptiness arise? I leave you with this koan. Then she had bowed and walked away, adjusting her bundle and tump line around her forehead. Clear Cloud was bothered. How did he know that was a real koan? A good teacher, of course, could all could come up with new koans, but the new koans were never seemed as good as those of the ancient masters. Chow Chow, invisible but with the power to darken the sun. Muman, with a giggle that still resounded after a thousand years, and the words of the golden-faced one himself. Still, he was disturbed. Surely the koan had been corrupted. It made no sense. It seemed to have no point. Clear Cloud was disappointed. The woman hadn't known the answer either. Another lost koan, if it were a real koan. It bothered him, though. There was something troubling about it. What if it really were from the ancients, another part of the great Dharma treasure? What was it she really was asking him? How could emptiness come from anything? What was emptiness? When he came to Puta Creek, Clear Cloud sat down on a rock to take off his robe and his moccasins to ford the creek. 
He walked along the bank looking for a good crossing point. As he was about to put his foot in the water, he thought again of the strange woman's smile. She had a grin that laughed. What had her eyes been trying to tell him? Suddenly, the surface of the water stopped moving. His foot hung motionless in the air, and then it was his foot, or the reflections of his foot, that were bouncing across the still surface of the stream. How could he have been so blind? He sat down on the sand and pebbles of the bank and put his hands into the river and laughed. How could he apologize to his students? He bent his face down to the water and took a long drink. He felt giddy, but he put his moccasins back on. If he hurried, he still might be able to overtake her, at least to make a bow and to present his answer, and maybe she knew another koan. Did anybody pick up on her answer? Was it her leaving or was it her filling the cup? Filling the cup. She didn't respond. She showed him. <gasps> Very moving. So how did you get to be such a good cook? Playing with fire. Glass and cooking have similar oh. relationship. Thermodynamics. Chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> we had a delicious venison curry last night tonight we'll, we'll try some um, Japanese farmhouse cuisine my time living there and a wonderful book that one of Alice Waters students put together um, was the venison did you guys did somebody was that local and you yeah. hunted it Roadkill. Oh well. Yeah. You did you find that and you just knew I didn't. It. A friend did. A friend did. And just said, Okay, it was fresh and here we go and just skin it and that's that, that's great. I I've been inspired to take my shoes off. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good to take your shoes off. It does. You. I can't I can't be in indoors with shoes on. It's no. been mm -hmm. I, Decades, I'm sorry, decades, I, decades. I didn't take them off at first, but I, I did, because I, I realized I really should. It, it felt right. Um. So I don't know what to talk about. I, I feel like I'm, I'm. It's so peaceful here. I'm like, I'm becoming very. It's very mellowing. This place has. I know. I could imagine our. our it does. It has a very mellowing effect. Are right, some of listeners. your poems? Yeah. Oh, great! Shop with a few. But I mean, this this place, the ambience of this place, it it's very, it feels zen. It feels like very mellowing. I always like when people that aren't zen students use yeah. zen as like a verb oh. or something, because I'm like not not in a negative way, but I'm always deeply curious what their definition is. I don't know. It just you know, like individually, right. we well, all use that word. I, I've heard a lot of people use it in different ways. Okay, and it's always very personal what people feel is zen. I feel like it's um. There's a because I do meditate. Now I don't know uh -huh. if that's I I do a practice of meditation, uh -huh. and to me it's a it's calming. It's it's kind of a it's uh -huh. a deeply relaxing, calming. It's about um, just focusing on the breath and being, and not and letting all the tension and all the 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 other stuff, the busyness of our minds, go. 
and just be being in that present with the breath, presence with the breath. But it's a very calming, and and I guess that's what I mean. As a Judeo Christian, I define Zen as holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is sometimes that, but it is all of our mind. Oh. It's our mind. It's not who we are. Uh-huh. It's that thing our mind is, that thing that goes without us wanting it to go. The thing that's a beast that brings up imageries and things we'd never choose to look at, but does. Zen is brutal. Zen will eat you fucking alive. Oh, wow. And I think people misconstrue it so often with calmness. Mm. I guess I have Will, would you add anything enough. to that? Sit for seven days with your own mind, with nowhere to go. That's... And this is, um, this is because we, we did talk about, um, we talked about Vipassana uh-huh. um, in our last. We our talked. Previous, we talked. We talked. We talked. Previous podcast. <laughs> anyway, we t- no, I know, I know. And. and Justin, she knows, she Justin knows we says, talked. you know, you should go on a Vipassana retreat. Well, you should too. Well, maybe we'll go. We'll go. But we, this is a Zen. This is different from Vipassana, but similar. I guess, I, I don't know if it's different. Other than just. Zen has a very tight um, format. And you uh, get up at the same time walk around in a certain way, you sit down, you face everyone the same way. And this um, format, this container, holds this chaotic, in a good way, uh, turmoil that's released by you just sitting there and not having any other release. And everything is going to come up. The peace, the fury, the um, bliss, the torment. I did go on a session, a Zen session, um, with Ken, you know, Ken Nab. Oh yeah. Friend. Yeah. I went on one of those, those, um, retreats up at, at to, um, Point Reyes. And so I had to get up at 5 a.m. or some very early hour that I don't usually get up. And, you know, you go out and sit and, it it you're right you know it does have a, a it's hard that I mean that kind of that practice that rigorous practice is hard showing up um, it's interesting how difficult self care is mm. at least for myself um, I could be it's hard to show up the same day and do something yeah some days it's it's extremely wonderful and other days it's really hard. But just to stick with that practice, whatever we choose it to be. Uh, we plateau. Mm-hmm. We, we get stuck. Yeah. And then we, we might never grow. And then maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Mm. Especially if the self-care involves waking up at really early. Like 5 a.m. <laughs> Ken got that from up here. He went on some Mountain and River sessions back oh, okay. when Gary was... So it's Active. similar. Yeah, it's the similar uh, format. What's a session? Um, mm-hmm. Sit around and meditate at 5 a.m. in the morning and then in the afternoon and then in the evening and you have discussions mm-hmm. uh, around 
different Zen Buddhist ideas. Or we did. We had discussions. Sure. Maybe you had uh, Mountain and Rivers Without End by Dogen. We probably did. We had. I remember the discussion. It was about whether or not there's a past or future, that the only thing that exists is now. And I was arguing with the guy, with the Roshi. Or I was <laughs> trying to argue that there was a past. And, you know, he was laughing. It was, I admit that I... I don't know. I there's I have much to learn. I do like to argue a lot. So reminds me of um one time I watch a student go up to the Roshi in a time like this to challenge the Roshi. Mm -hmm. And the student says, I question your intentions. <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher simply responds. I question yours. <laughs> and that and the student sat down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, I just I just I think part of it is not necessarily that I'm trying to argue. It's just that I'm trying to understand. And I you know, and, and so I feel like the questions come as like, well, what about this? And you know, the argue it's like I'm arguing, but I'm trying to through critical discussion and almost like critical debate come to a an understanding. Well, think of the difference between the school of Pythagoras versus mm -hmm. Plato. Okay. Plato being logical, right? Right. He was able to come to certain understandings around mathematics. Mm -hmm. Pythagoras, his school was like an ashram, fucking nut jobs, like dietary restrictions. And Don't eat beans. Certain set of disciplines that people would go through and usually get similar results. Oh, wow. Yeah. But there is no logic to it. So I like to play with these two schools of thought as a mm -hmm. modality for my own being, right? So like I've got the whole logos thing going. Like I can try to rationalize and mm -hmm. understand. But the mystery, that version of information, does my belief isn't required. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, they're both useful. Right. It's not to discount one or the other. It's to know when. Uh, I don't discern. trust a mind that's never been blown. <laughs> <You're> here, <laughs> or like I forget what saying you yes you used yesterday, Will. But like I always I like to say, you know, like um, happenings are not as interesting as uh, plans. You said something of a similar sense. You know, yesterday was about poetics, but you know, like the things that happen are never as interesting as oh. the things we plan. But you said a different version of chance this. does it much better than I. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. So the, that's mm. a, that's a nice way to go about it. And poetry for myself works like this. You know, it comes. I'd love to hear some of your poems. Here's one about the little bear, literally the bear that came to visit today. But this was last year with its mom. Okay. It's titled "Bear Dance." We sit back around the fire waiting for the ceremony to begin. The deer's hind leg injured and lame, stew gently simmering on the stove. Baby bear vocalizes, Maham! Maham! Treed, 
by a warning shot. My daughter, Esme, asks me, Are the dancers really animals? Remembering Jaime, I respond, Are they animals? Animal people? Or people animals? Uh, Gary wrote in one of his essays um, that the elaborate yearly cyclical production of grand ritual dramas in the societies of Pueblo Indians of North America, for one example, can be seen as a process by which the whole society consults the non-human, inhuman, inner human powers and allows some individuals to step totally out of their human roles to put on the mask, costume, and mind of bison, bear, squash, horn, or Pleiades, to re-enter the human circle in that form, and by song, mime, dance, convey a greeting from another realm. And that was from Yogan and the Philosopher that Gary wrote that. Um, This next one's titled, uh, The West is Mostly Arid. When I arrived, the lights were off. A large freeway sign that read, Horse closed. No day use. No camping. An old sutra says, No hindrance in the mind. No hindrance, thus no fear. Not that I don't understand but rather, no need to understand. Dixie to the north, Caldor to the south. Fire has become a season, unborn, unending, in service to rebirth and death, scattering several generations of innocence or ignorance, likely both. The fire tender stays up till dawn, warning embers that now prepare breakfast. Today the youngers get ready at dawn. They will run the ridges carrying, fire to light the way as they go. Snakes rising towards the sky, out the smoke hole, eating the sun. Elders and children dreaming. Smoke curling around them, uprising. A close friend talks of moving east. Told him I will stay. Deserts and fire been following me for all my life. Roadrunners can't leave the sand any more than fish can live out of water. Here's a little one about the road we live off of, Jackass Flats. It's a long dirt road. How many miles, Will? Three? Um, this one's titled Hares and Pistons. On my way home, driving along Jackass Flats, jackrabbits on both sides of the road. A third runs ahead of me, 
accelerate to keep up. Nearly 30 miles per hour. Recommended speed being 20 miles per hour. I slow down. Rabbit keeps running. One last one for the place and folks here. Um, what's the use of all these poems? Mountains, rivers, praises for hermits. What's the use of origami cranes? Doves of peace, bedtime stories, Bob Dylan songs. What's the use of memory? Love, loss, loose women, forgotten soldiers, time, circumstance. What's the use of statistics? Game theory, gambles, birth and death. How long have you been writing poetry? Hmm, maybe seven years now. And that's, how long have you lived out here? Five. Okay. But I've been working with Gary now about ten years. So after I started studying at the Zendo at one point, I went up to Gary and asked if he could trade me for something. And he mm -hmm. said, what would you trade? I said, I'd like to work for you, and will you teach me about this place? Mm -hmm. And we started meeting once a week. And I go, and he would show me um, about his solar system mm. or about chopping wood or just how to really live, help him live there, but also learning about how to live here myself. And we did that for quite a while until he got a little older and it didn't work out any longer. Mm -hmm. Another friend of mine, Davis Reeves, came along, moved in next door and start, he took over that day and started doing the work. Mm -hmm. And now my son does it once a week. Mm. My son, Tristan, who's 10, oh, wow. goes over and works with Gary nice. on every Thursday or Friday. Um, So he is sort of a, your mentor. Gary Snyder has been your mentor. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and now he's your son's kind of mentor. It's, it's become, it's changed. Oh. We're more like friends, yeah. grandson, son nice. type relationship. That's, we have birthdays and celebrations together. and That's so cool. We have the same birthday. So like this last year we had our birthday party oh. together, which was just our family. Nice. Um, that's really neat. Um, Did you get everything you wanted? <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Um, I think we were drinking scotch that night, so that was more than what I wanted. <laughs> Um, but it seems because your poetry, I do, it's very much, um, it has a feel to it that, that reminds me a little bit of, I mean, I can, I can see a little bit of maybe a Gary influence now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's beautiful mm. and it's, it's unique, but, uh, it does, I can tell that you have, that he has, you know, influenced you. Um, and it's also very connected to you know, nature, earth, the environment. A lot of Gary's poems are about, about place, about where he lives, about this area, about, you know, Gaia, Mother Earth, and Turtle Island. And you two seem to focus on just, even just simple things, you know, just your environment. And, and but it, like to use 
just your observations of where you are um, to maybe bring home a, a bigger point. You know, there's metaphor, there's more to it. And that's beautiful. I, I, Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling on, but... Um, Birthday. We're both Tauruses, May 8th, mm. day, in the te- day of the teacher mm. in astrology. So I don't know how much that has to do with it, but if you look at that day, a lot of people talks about we revitalize old ways we mm. you know so i don't know how much to really buy into that necessarily but like you know in our, earlier in our talk my my partner at the time yuka had seen that there was something about what i was talking about was very similar to gary's yeah so um yes there is a connectivity to it um my relationship with gary is been very healing for myself with my own father you know having a mm. father figure in my life so yeah and then of course him teaching me about language itself and the tricks he uses in the poem you know a lot of it he's, he's literally passed on to me nice. and grilled me on uh, not in the softest of ways <laughs> oh that's intimidating huh <laughs> oh it's fun okay yeah like what makes you think this is a poem <laughs> is an often question if you're really friends with Gary he's not going to yeah. sugarcoat anything he wants to know why you did it and what, what you think you're trying to do mm. and I think that's a good question mm-hmm. is this a poem why is this a poem what makes you think this is a poem okay well that a is poem? a good question what makes a poem right and that, we get back to that again you know what mm. makes a poem uh, musicality being one thing surprises being another there's something pithy. I've been I've doing been doing a lot of work with Will's poems lately. So, <laughs> Will, I'd love to hear your take on that question. What makes a poem? Um, it's possible to learn how to do it, but not very many do it very well. <laughs> it takes a few decades uh, to get good, and then it's just like what word to take out, mostly. Yeah, you are a master of reduction. And sometimes you can add, you can rearrange the elements. And you need a hook at the beginning, and you need, not too obvious, some kind, not a conclusion, but some place, especially if you leave them with an image, you're leaving with them with a picture in their mind that will stay there after the sound of the words is gone. And as I taught fourth graders for decades, poetry is written in lines. At the end of a line, you pause. Poetry shows feelings, emotions. To show these feelings, we make pictures out of words called images, and we sharpen the images the same way you sharpen a picture with just the right details. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Oh, good. There is an answer. But teacher. Yes. yes. <laughs> if you come up with another poem, that would be, was most effective because uh, it talked about yourself and also the play. I was about to Don't come up with an critical. argument. The other day I ran into myself. It had been a long time. 
the conversation dull. Not much to say. If you can find me, you are welcome. If you can stand me, you can stay. <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> Thanks for coming to visit you guys. Oh, oh thank you. This is great. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's really funny. <clears throat> All right. So should I, should I just go? Letter to 2020. The kids are good. My heart, still at war with itself. Gary asked, in his complete sincerity of age, is it the 80s? 400 cows lost in the bear fire might be the last of the Sierra ranchers. Burned up in a day. Trees and books both flammable, blaze, going up in smoke. History and place, easily misplaced. Fire moves across the mountain, sweeping, brushing, cleaning, reminding, burning its way. Questions carry in the embers. What becomes ash? What will be saved. Clearing debris, accumulations of greed, hate, injustice, neglect, ignorance, fear, loss, culture, mind. Smoke bridges barriers so that ghosts and the living can share the same space. Exchanging moments before the sky clears again. There's a beauty in that ignorance. Just before the realization that something's been lost. Letter to 2021. The kids are bigger. So are the trees. Summer longer. Winter shorter. More dry. Despite global politics, local squabbles, disagreements in ourselves, on occasion, put on each other. The neighbors still talk. In fact, we learned friendly boundaries. How to come together, to nurture, create a place greater, than the individualistic state of mind that tends to remain cozy in one's own rightness. Maybe we all got bigger. Maybe this is how we as people go on, gotten this far. Letter to 2022. Today is warm and windy. Fire to the southwest. The kids play, imagining, unaware of the dangers we have left for them that they will know one day. Ages and dreams pass by, slightly more aware, but less capable because of that knowing 
that keeps getting in the way of itself. The most one can do is doing the next task at hand. An old man sits watching the job he had once done himself. A young man he had known as a young child shows him he paid attention by showing him a better way of doing it. The one forgetting. The other working it out. Meeting where tradition and spontaneity collide. Time stills in moments like these. Not a thing remains. Male mantis take permissible risks when mating. If love is permissible, then so is death. (laughs) 